As we continue in our time this week, um, our primary text will be Ephesians chapter 5. And so if you would, open in your Bibles with me and stand as we read our primary text today. Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 32. There, Paul speaking to the church at Ephesus says this. Ephesians 5, beginning verse 25. Husbands... Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Our time this morning revolves around this discussion of marriage and its relation to our future glory, our future end. And as such, we will be speaking of marriage as a sort of dress rehearsal for that which is yet to come. And to use this terminology, dress rehearsal, is a bit of a challenge for me because personally, in my own experiences of every wedding I've ever helped out with and as, a, as an usher or groomsman or, or groom, the dress rehearsal has seemed exceptionally boring and pointless. And I don't think I'm alone in this. At least every groomsman I've ever served with seemed to have that same mentality. Uh, because we've all spent every dress rehearsal um, pretty much talking and ignoring everything the wedding coordinator has said, much to the coordinator's dismay. And if you're a wedding coordinator, I apologize. Um, but we all view it as boring and, and pointless. And And as a groomsman who just wanted to hang out with friends, it was an hour and a half to two hours of time that I always wished I could have back. And yet, as many of us have experienced perhaps who have wasted the dress rehearsal, I then found myself in a moment of panic the next day when the wedding ceremony actually began. And like every groomsman I've ever served with, I began looking around eagerly, forgetting where I'm supposed to stand, forgetting when I'm supposed to enter, forgetting really what the whole point of this is, it seems. And suddenly I would remember each wedding that that dress rehearsal actually turned out to be kind of important. My wife assured me last night that maybe this is a man problem because she personally enjoys the dress rehearsal, but I don't know. Um, But perhaps you can relate to that frustration and to that boredom a a little bit. Uh, Ultimately, despite how, how boring it might seem, the dress rehearsal is in fact pretty important to help prepare us for the coming day. And when it comes to its application in marriage, ultimately... It is important to understand this concept because while we might not consider it frequently, our present-day marriages are ultimately for the purpose of of preparing us for something far greater that lies ahead. And so frequently, I think, people, both believers and unbelievers, fail to appreciate this concept about marriage. And in failing to appreciate that overall narrative that is being told and the overall purpose of marriage, we then fail or are greatly challenged to actually enter into a marriage and, and put, it into pra- put into practice that which we know we're supposed to put into practice. And so as we examine this concept of marriage, just as we began last week, today we'll be talking of marriage as this greater metaphor, 
and what marriage is always supposed to represent. And having explored that metaphor then, we will then enter back into perhaps the more practical points of application and, and how that metaphor applies to our daily lives. As we do so, hopefully we will have a better appreciation of the gospel, a better appreciation of Christ, and a better understanding of of what our daily calling looks like as disciples of Christ. With that being said, let me go and open us up in prayer, and we will dig into Ephesians 5 and a number of other passages. Father in heaven, we do thank you for our time this morning. God, as we once again pick up this discussion on marriage, we recognize we are picking up a discussion that is vitally important to have. God, it has been vitally important since Genesis, and it continues to be incredibly important and widely misunderstood today. As we live in a culture where marriage is oftentimes abused, it is oftentimes misunderstood, and it is oftentimes thrown aside in favor of personal fulfillment and fleeting joy, God, both in the church as well as outside of the church. And so, God, this morning as we continue in this look at marriage, we pray that we might be given a reminder of how precious this relationship is. Might it be a reminder of how blessed every single believer is, whether or not they are married, God, to have a relationship with Christ. A reminder of his precious and sanctifying love that is at work in our lives daily. And for those of us who are married, God, might this look be a call back to the foundational commands given to us in marriage so that we can not only be certain that we are living out our lives and our marriage daily, in a way that's glorifying to you, but we can also be certain that we're living out our lives as responsible disciples who are actively being prepared and actively preparing for that future day of glory, the day in which we will be joined with your Son, Jesus Christ, forever in your kingdom, God. To that day, we eagerly look, God. We pray that it might be soon. But for this morning, God, bless our time as we look to your word once again. It's in your precious Son, Jesus Christ, and we pray these things. Amen. As we start, we again start with this broader look at marriage, we take a step back and understand before we can properly apply the the commands of marriage in Ephesians 5, we must first understand and see this this greater metaphor that is being told. And as we already saw in Ephesians 5, the picture, the metaphor is quite clear. Marriage from the beginning has, has been intended to picture the relationship between Christ and the church. That's been the truth from the very beginning. And and Ephesians 5 makes this clear. Again, if you look at Ephesians 5, verse 32, Paul speaks this in no uncertain terms. There again, he says, The mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and to the church. And giving instructions to husbands and wives, Paul is quick to, to point us back to this greater relationship that, that marriage is meant to represent. And Paul is by no means the first biblical author to do this, for as you read throughout Scripture, this is a very common image, a very common metaphor that is used. You see it throughout the Old Testament as well as the New, and we'll look at a couple of passages here in a moment. But as we do, and as we seek to understand what Paul is saying here, it's important to to have a basic grasp of what marriage would have looked like, or what really the engagement would have looked like in the culture that the original audience lived. For their engagement period was a bit different from the sort of engagement that we see in our American culture today. As some of you already understand, the cultural practice of that day and age was one in which the engagement really began long before the actual marriage ceremony. In that cultural practice, there was the the point of betrothal, where frequently the parents would choose a bride for their son, 
parental involvement was very common, as it continues to be in most culture, in many cultures today. And so the parents would choose a bride for their son, and this could be many years before the actual ceremony, but at that point in time, they would enter in a, a sort of contract. Years on down the road, the second stage would begin when that groom would show up at the bride's house, and he would take her up, he would lead her back in a procession back to his family's home, and it was there that the ceremony would finally take place, and after the ceremony, you would have the great feast, the great celebration in which the life of that husband and wife would now be joined together, and in which they would be seen as, as one flesh, to use the language of Scripture. And throughout the Bible, depending on on what text you're looking at, various aspects of that engagement period might be emphasized. And so, for instance, throughout the Old Testament, there's a great deal of language given to describe God's relationship with Israel as as husband and wife. And and the emphasis oftentimes will speak to God's preordaining or electing, setting Israel aside from the beginning, in essence, choosing his bride for himself. You see other language of husband and bride throughout the Old Testament, but as you come to the New Testament, Jesus is quick to pick up on the same imagery. And in Matthew chapter 25, you find the parable of the ten bridesmaids, the ten virgins, in which Jesus speaks of that that second aspect of marriage in which the groom shows up. And the language, the lesson of that parable in Matthew 25 is quite simply the lesson that we need to be ready We need to be like the bride, eagerly anticipating the arrival of our groom, and we don't want to miss his arrival, because if we miss it, you know, we're done for. We've missed our opportunity, and so Jesus says, you must be prepared, you must be ready for that day when the groom shows up to take you away. Perhaps most powerfully, at the end of that marriage narrative, you find passages like that in, in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 19, having experienced that long period of waiting, and having experienced the groom Christ returning for his bride, you find this language in Revelation chapter 19, and I encourage you to turn over briefly, even though we'll be here for a short time, because it is such powerful imagery that speaks of our future marriage, our future ceremony. Revelation 19, again, of course, coming the very end of the Bible, and the 19th chapter coming towards the very end of that final book. And describing this particularly glorious event, John is given this vision in which he sees this beginning in verse 6 of Revelation 19. John says, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the words of God. In this image, in this vision, as John sees the future, as he sees this coming event that that has yet to happen to us today, he sees that glorious day in which we finally are made one with Christ, in which we finally are brought to that heavenly kingdom home, where we'll be free from impurity, where we will be free from sin, where we will belong with our groom. And it's a glorious image when you consider it, especially in light of, of our own ongoing frustrations and struggles in the here and now. It's, it's a great and necessary reminder to think daily of the fact that this is your future if you are in Christ. You will be made pure. You will be made perfect. And at your arrival in heaven, you will be greeted 
with great celebration. For your arrival represents the success of our groom, of our glorious King, Christ. But key in understanding that event, and in recognition of that event, is that language that is used to describe the bride. Again, look closely at verse 7 and 8, where that bride, where we the church, are described. Again, it says, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And in connection to this great day of celebration, there is this this clear point being made, and that is that this day of glory does not come until after the bride has made herself ready. Meaning, the time between the betrothal, the time from the point in which we are saved to the time in which we are brought in glory, is vitally important time. It is not to be wasted, it is not to be looked past, it is not to be forgotten. It is time that is meant to be entirely for the sake of our preparation. To use the language back in Ephesians 5, it is time that is spent for the sake of our sanctification. And with that in mind, look back to Ephesians 5, for it is that language that is used to describe that ongoing work that is indeed taking place right now and will continue to take place until we get to glory. In describing the love of Christ back in Ephesians 5, in this great spiritual marriage, Paul says this again, Ephesians 5, verse 25 and 26, or through 27. Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Christ has saved us, and we can, we can be confident that in glory we'll be joined with him, but we must also remember that Christ has saved us for, for the purpose of bringing us to that point, to purify us, to sanctify us. Now this term sanctification is a term that is key to understand, really, if we're to understand our overall calling, both in marriage but also for all of us as believers. For sanctification is, again, that work that is taking place in all of our hearts. A basic definition of sanctification, and I believe this might be on your bulletin. Sanctification, as it is defined there, just speaks to that progressive work of God and man that makes us increasingly free from sin and more like Christ in our daily lives. Sanctification is, is this ongoing work, meaning it is constant, meaning it is Gaining momentum, there is improvement, there is change that is happening in the life of the believer. And that change happens as the result of God's work, but also man's obedience. Sanctification is one of these few things in Scripture where there's this clear biblical mandate, this clear responsibility given to you and I regarding our growth. And as a result of that ongoing work, there's this guaranteed change that makes us increasingly free from sin, and more and more like Jesus. It increasingly makes us ready to, to fit in in that day of glory so that when we enter heaven, we belong. We, we, we belong to be there. There's nothing bizarre about that imagery. Now, our role in this sanctification is important, and we'll get into that in a few minutes. But man's role is, is pretty straightforward, isn't it? I think most of us understand our role in our daily lives, that we are to strive after those things that are pure, strive after those things that are holy, we're to try to be more like Christ, we're to try to do those basic things that we've been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Be marked by humility, to be marked by that thirst for purity, that thirst for righteousness. But in all these things, in all of our work, we have to understand that that our role is secondary to the role that God is playing. For no change is possible without his work taking place. Just as you cannot simply save yourself from sin, you also cannot magically say, okay, I'm done with sin now, and therefore I'm going to be glorified. Right? That doesn't happen. You are just as dependent on Christ, ongoing work day to day, as you're dependent upon him in that day of salvation, in that day of initial justification. And so what is so glorious about the imagery of Ephesians 5 is, is as Paul describes what marriage looks like, He uses Christ as the great example of a groom who, in fact, is loving us in this sanctifying manner. The result of Christ's love and the manner in which he continually loves us is we are daily becoming more and more like Jesus and, again, daily becoming increasingly prepared for our future day of glory. As you read throughout Scripture, you can see many ways that Christ does this. In Ephesians 5, Paul specifically mentions the idea of sacrificing himself, but But the love of Christ which sanctifies us goes beyond Ephesians 5. We, of course, do not have time to to exhaustively search scriptures and see the many ways that that Christ's love sanctifies us. But we can see a, a few key examples, particularly in the New Testament, of how God's love is, in fact, accomplishing this great change in us. One of the greatest gifts, one of the greatest things that Christ specifically does for us to to help us in this ongoing call is in giving us the Holy Spirit. As our groom, who, is, who, has been, who we've been given to in betrothal, Christ gives us the necessary power to strive to prepare for that day of glory. And you see this promise of the Holy Spirit in passages like John chapter 14. Look over at John chapter 14. You see Christ make this promise to his disciples and to all of us. John 14 would would, without the role of the Holy Spirit, be overwhelming, for Jesus is speaking of his impending crucifixion, and he's telling the disciples what their calling will be. He's telling them how they will be responsible for carrying out this great message of the gospel. They will be responsible for building up the church. They will be responsible for for taking on Jesus' role. It's a pretty bold statement, a pretty overwhelming calling, and yet, to encourage them in this calling, Jesus repeatedly speaks of of the one who will allow this to happen, the one who will give them the power to to accomplish this calling. Look specifically at John chapter 14 and verses 15. We'll begin begin in verse, yeah, 15. There John, speaking to his disciples, says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Jesus, having said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, immediately speaks of, okay, here's how you're going to keep my commandments. The Holy Spirit will indwell you. He will allow you to keep them. He will give you that ability. Later on in that same chapter, John 14, Jesus says in verses 25 and 26, these things I've spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Again, you see this comment where where there's this heavy burden placed upon the disciples of obedience and yet immediately, in order to make that, that burden light, in order to make this possible, Jesus again speaks of the role of the Holy Spirit. 
And we see throughout Scripture that when we come to Christ, we are given that Holy Spirit. He indwells us. He grows fruit in us. He allows you to understand Scripture. He allows you to apply Scripture. Apart from that ongoing, powerful Spirit who indwells us, who is in fact the third member of the Trinity, we would be lost. We would be hopeless. Change could not possibly happen. But in order to ensure change happens, Christ gives us that Holy Spirit. The Father sends us that Spirit to indwell us. Beyond the Holy Spirit, however, there are other blessings that God gives us, and we understand that every blessing, every good gift is intended, again, to help us in our sanctification. James chapter 1, verses 16 through 17 speaks of, again, the fact that, that every good and perfect thing is from God. Every good thing that is in your life is a gift from God, and every good thing is intended to reflect His goodness. It's intended to reflect His, His grace, His mercy. And so again, as we enjoy those benefits of Christ, as, as we enjoy the fruit of the Spirit that grows in us, as we enjoy various gifts, we are to enjoy them re- remembering, okay, this is, this is a taste of God's grace. This is a foretaste of what is to come. I am to take this blessing, and, and I am to respond by praising God and remembering my complete dependence upon Him. Even beyond those blessings, however, we see that God is in charge of, of our suffering. And, and as difficult as it might seem, That same author, James, speaks of of how suffering, too, can be a great blessing. For in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, he says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Again, we don't like to experience these sort of things, clearly. We'd rather have the blessings. But even suffering is a blessing to us, for it humbles us. It shows us this is not our home. We don't belong here. It shows us we're being prepared for something far greater, far more significant, far more glorious. And so James and other passages and and Paul in Romans speaks of this idea of we must be careful to respond appropriately to those trials, to those difficulties, because those two are coming from the loving hand of our groom who is preparing us, who is growing us, who is sanctifying us. In a similar difficult manner other passages promise that that god will correct us in our sin in hebrews chapter 12 the author there speaks of the fact that that as a loving father the, the father corrects us in our sin he provides spiritual discipline and again that discipline is not enjoyable but ultimately it's to our benefit ultimately it's making us prepared to be a better bride to christ it's it's preparing us for that day of perfect purity for that day of perfect glory and everything In both good and bad times, then, we can trust that that our groom, our perfect King Christ, is actively working to make you more like Him. He's actively working to make it to when that day of glory arrives, you will be ready as His bride. You will be beautiful. You will be perfect. And perhaps as one of the sweetest examples of the sanctifying love, even beyond all of these gifts... We have other passages in the New Testament that speaks of the fact that our groom Christ actively prays for us. He he takes stand and intercedes on our behalf before the Father. You see this in a a variety of passages, one of them being Hebrews chapter 7. And describing this role, the author of Hebrews says this in chapter 7, verses 23 through 25, comparing Christ to lesser priests of the Old Testament. We read this, the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently 
Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Always. The love of Christ did not end when he was resurrected from the grave, and it does not simply pick up in glory. It is constant. Jesus lives daily to make intercession on on our measly behalf. As we struggle with our sad little sins and our lack of faith, the King of all creation stands before Father in heaven, and, and he represents us. And he prays for us. And even though we do not understand all of the content of those prayers, we are given one powerful example of Christ's specific prayer for us. Back in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 17, we have this great high priestly prayer of Jesus recorded. And in that prayer, we see a number of just beautiful, incredibly encouraging things that we see, again, Christ praying for his bride, the church, both speaking of the disciples then as well as for those of us who live today. And amongst many of those beautiful requests, listen to the words of Christ that he prays to the Father in verses 13 through 19. Jesus speaking says, Now I come to you. These things I speak in the world so they may have, so they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves might also be sanctified in truth. Reading further, verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us. So the world may believe that you sent me. What an incredible prayer of Christ to to pray for our protection, to pray directly for our sanctification, for our own ongoing purity, to pray something so so incredible as to say that that he asks the Father to make us one just as he and the Father are one. He he prays for us to understand that intense love that, that is understood alone in the Trinity between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Jesus here then displaying not just his his kingship, his kingly authority, but but displaying that humility before the Father, that submission before the Father and eagerly seeking out our benefit by his righteous, omnipotent hand. This is the picture of of a groom that loves his bride, that does everything and will continue to do everything necessary to ensure that he will never leave us, to ensure that we indeed will be prepared for that future day of glory, for we know that he is the one who is sovereignly at work in us. This is the promise made to every single believer. That regardless of your marital status on earth, you are spoken for. You are the bride of Christ. You are actively being prepared. And yes, you ought to strive for obedience, but you can understand ultimately your glory, your beauty, your sanctification is not entirely up to you. And thank God for that truth. This is the great truth of marriage, this great metaphor that speaks to the relationship every single believer experiences. It is only with that metaphor in mind then that one can appreciate then just how grand and how, how weighty this relationship of marriage that we experience here on earth truly is. For it is far grander, far greater than, than anything pretty much everyone in our culture seems to appreciate. For again, it is so easy to, to throw marriage aside. It is so easy in the midst of struggles to just assume that the divorce is the easy option. It's the better option. Surely everyone will be happier. But 
that completely misses the point of, of the relationship, of the metaphor. Now, what we understand in light of our current call to preparation is that marriage, as Paul describes it, is in fact a unique means of that sanctification, of preparation. This is why it exists to point us forward and to prepare us in a very special way for that day of glory. And it is because of the metaphor that we're able to enter back into that relationship and and daily remind ourselves of our constant foundation that is unchanging, daily remind ourselves of of our constant purpose, which we are called, and daily remind ourselves of the example that we follow. Again, back in Ephesians 5, that that foundation is quite clear. Again, we read it before, but in 5, verse 32, Paul says, This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Everything, everything that Paul and any other biblical author has to say about marriage rests on this fact. Rests on the foundation of the gospel. And just like every other aspect of our Christian calling, this foundation is essential as we strive to be the husbands, the wives that that God has called us to be. For on this foundation, we find our constant identity. For it is not found in our spouse. It's not found in how great our family looks. It's found purely in Christ. And thank God for that because Christ doesn't change. And so our identity never changes. This foundation speaks to our humility for it reminds us that, that we are broken sinners. And as big of a screw-up as your husband or or wife might be, we're all equally big screw-ups when it comes to sin. We've all messed up in a royal fashion as we've sinned, as we've we've gone against the perfect law of God. And so the gospel comes in and it reminds us constantly of our ongoing dependence on Christ. Of how our, our only hope for change is Christ. How our only hope is to proclaim that gospel of Jesus Christ. This gospel reminds us that we cannot change our spouse, that we cannot change ourselves, but but that everything is dependent constantly on our ultimate groom, Jesus, who has defeated our sin and who will deliver us into glory in the future. Speaking to that same end, this metaphor speaks to our constant purpose in marriage. And just as Christ is constantly preparing us for that future day of glory, we understand that the purpose of your relationship with your husband and with your wife is for your and for their preparation. That is why you exist in each other's lives. And if you have been married for more than a day, you understand that marriage has a unique way of of forcing you into that sanctification, doesn't it? For it very quickly reveals your sin. It did not take long for me to realize how selfish I am after getting married. Right? Because there are certain tendencies that I have that I always thought were perfectly fine. These, these tendencies towards independence, these tendencies towards just selfish ambition that suddenly when you become married are, are, are impossible to miss. We have certain tendencies that are easy to overlook by our friends, that are easy to overlook when we're alone. But when we have someone with us daily who sees us in our best moments as well as in our worst we cannot avoid that constant confrontation that we are sinners in need of growth, in need of change. And so daily, what we are called to do is understand that ultimately, the identity of your spouse is not simply, your sp- is not simply being your spouse. Their identity is, is a co-heir with Jesus Christ. You see this reminder throughout the New Testament. It was a reminder that was key in the New Testament day and age because... In that day and age, women were seen as as lesser creatures, right? They were the objects of their husbands. 
But in Scripture, New Testament authors constantly say, no, no, husbands, your wife is, is equal with you in Jesus Christ. You see this blatantly said in passages such as 1 Peter. In 1 Peter verse, chapter 3, verse 7, he says, You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor, this is key, show her honor as a fellow heir of grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. This is a heavy warning given to every husband. Make sure you treat her with grace because she is equal to you in Christ. And if you mess this up, if you forget this, your prayers to God go unheard. You can kiss that part of your sanctification goodbye in that moment. You have to understand this vital truth as husbands. You are equal in Christ. You are both being made increasingly into that image of Christ. You are both being prepared for the purpose of your day of glory. This is so important to remember because so oftentimes, as Eric spoke of last week, our culture teaches us that that our greatest hope in marriage is is our own personal joy. People get married because they they fall in love. People get married because they want to have kids. People get married because, well, they're supposed to get married. People get married for a variety of reasons. But ultimately what the Bible tells us is, no, the whole point of your marriage is for you to be made more and more like Jesus Christ. And so wives, your greatest hope in your marriage isn't just for your husband to to love you more. It's for your husband to be made more like Jesus Christ. That's your greatest hope. Husbands, in the same way, your greatest hope and your greatest joy in marriage isn't just some fantasy in which your wife waits on you hand and foot. That's foolishness. That's ridiculous. Your greatest hope and your greatest joy is for your wife to become more and more like Christ. That's it. And you both exist to help in that, in that process of sanctification. And you've been blessed with a relationship, again, that kind of, in a way, as, as some have put it, puts you on this fast track because it forces you to deal with these sins on a daily basis that many other relationships simply cannot do. And so, as Christians in marriage, we recognize that that, that marriage exists for the purpose of preparation. And let me say a quick word to those who are married to an unbeliever, because clearly... Right? They're not going to be made more like Christ on a daily basis, but, but still the, the calling remains the same. Speaking to wives in First Peter, the author, in the same way, speaks to those who are married to an unbelieving husband, and the call is the same. The call is to submit. It's to live out in a way in which you hope that, that your husband might be won over to the gospel. Ultimately, regardless of your, of your spouse's current spiritual status, your greatest hope for them remains the exact same. It's conformity to Christ. There's nothing that will be better for your marriage, and there's nothing that will be better for them in eternity. And so daily, we remind ourselves that we stand on that foundation of the gospel. Daily, we remind ourselves that we exist for the purpose of preparation, for the purpose of that ongoing purification, sanctifying process. And in light of that purpose, we can then understand and appreciate the words of Paul and many others when we are told to simply follow that role of Christ, follow that example of Jesus. Again, so frequently we want to jump to this final point of of practical application, but if you do not first understand your purpose, if you do not first understand that greater metaphor, the practical application is, is pointless. It is overwhelming. It is too much to bear. But when we understand already what Christ is accomplishing, what he has accomplished, when we understand our role in that process, then suddenly 
these calls that are given to husbands and wives that, that are caused for such great disagreement and arguments in the church and in our culture today aren't all that, that weighty. It's, it's pretty straightforward. For as we again return to Ephesians chapter 5, the example we're given of Christ gives us a few easy ways that are not necessarily easy, but a few clear ways in which we can apply this calling. Again, Ephesians 5, speaking to that Christ, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for, so that he might sanctify her, having her cleansed by the washing of the water of the word. The first characteristic, first point of application, is this concept of having a sacrificial mindset. This mindset, of course, is all over Scripture. This isn't just for married people. We are told time and time again by Paul and others to consider the needs of others more important than our own. This is an essential calling of every single one of us. And in marriage, it's particularly important because when you consider the specific roles given to husbands and wives in passages like Ephesians 5, you understand it requires a great deal of sacrifice. Prior to this point, in Ephesians 5, just before this text and in verses 22 through 24, you see this calling given to wives. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body, but the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Now obviously, wives, your husband is, is not literally Christ. We understand that. There, there's, there's this prioritization of, of submission first to Christ, but still... There's this calling of, of submission, and, and it doesn't take a great deal of thinking to understand how much sacrifice this takes. For this requires you to sacrifice perhaps your own plans revolving around maybe your future, your own desires in any given moment. It requires you to sacrifice pride constantly. Even if your husband is not leading in the wisest of manners, when you are able at every point in time, you are to strive to to sacrifice that self-will. You're not being called to do something that Christ has not done himself. Christ himself, of course, uh, exemplifies submission and his, his approach to the Father in his earthly ministry. And so wives are, are to imitate that same sacrificial mindset. Husbands, of course, are, are called in, in an equally weighty manner in verses 25 through 27 when they are called to follow Christ's example of sacrifice. And so as husbands, we... We are called to have that same mindset. We are called to lead in a manner that's glorifying to God. We are called to sacrifice things that maybe we would want to do. Sacrifice time, sacrifice money, sacrifice a lot of things for the sake, again, of sanctifying our wives constantly. That is our calling for sacrifice. Both husband and wife then are called in this manner in order to exemplify and reflect, or in order to reflect Christ. The husband and wife both must sacrifice if they are to sanctify. Beyond that mindset, however, there's also that idea of, of literal constant service, of, of constant action. Jesus and his ministry to us, of course, does not simply say, oh, I really hope that everything works out for the bride. No, Christ act, actively does everything necessary for our sanctification. Christ, of course, first and foremost, died for us. That's a big one. Right? But even beyond that, look at the service that Christ offers his disciples throughout, the, new, throughout the, the Gospels. You have these great examples of Christ washing feet, but it's beyond that. It's, it's Christ patiently teaching his disciples. 
So frequently the disciples are utterly clueless in everything that Jesus says, and yet Jesus, time and time again, patiently teaches them. Yes, Jesus corrects them when there needs to be correction, but time and time again there is that constant service in which Jesus takes care of the needs of the disciples time and time again. We too as husband and wives follow in that same example. And so for wives, as, as you strive to submit to the leading of your husband, you do so while still serving, while striving to take care of the needs that you can, while encouraging him where you can. It's so easy to simply belittle one another and be so critical of each other when they, when they fall short of our expectations. But again, that's not our calling. Yes, of course, wives and husbands, if your spouse is in clear sin, there's time and there's, there's a place to grace, graciously and mercifully speak to that. But for the most part, we're called to encourage. We're called to serve. For husbands, there's this calling to serve by washing with the word, to speak the gospel to your wife, to, to understand that she has been put in an extremely vulnerable position. As hard as it is to lead at times, and I share that, that struggle, I cannot imagine being under my leadership when quite oftentimes I fail miserably. I put my wife Jamie in difficult times by making ridiculous decisions at points in time, right? And as husbands, we, we will do this. We will fail in our leadership times. And we have to understand that our wives are put in this difficult position where they're still called to submit. And so we appreciate that and we encourage them and, and we speak the gospel to them. We speak the truth of the word to them. We strive to protect them from, from the world around them that speaks of how foolish it is to submit to their husbands, that speak of how foolish it is to, to try to honor their husbands. And so we, we strive to encourage, we strive to lead, we strive to maintain that personal spiritual purity in our own lives, whether that speaks to our own personal lusts or a variety of other sins. We, we do everything not simply for our sanctification, but first and foremost, we do it to help our wives along the process. And so husbands and wives, we are to selflessly serve at all times, constantly, consistently. Of course, we could go on and on about many other ways we could serve, but it would not take long, and perhaps it's already happened, where all of us feel pretty worthless. Because all of us, if we look at Christ and we look at our lives, understand we fail miserably on a regular basis. And if it is entirely on our shoulders that our spouse becomes sanctified and more like Christ, quite frankly, our spouse is pretty hopeless as well. But thankfully, again, following the example of Christ, we understand that our service to our spouse does not simply end with sacrifice. It does not end with service, but it, it ends and it continually depends on the idea of, of constant prayer and supplication before God. Again, following the example of our perfect groom, we are called and we are expected to, to regularly intercede on behalf of, of our spouse, to, to pray to God, to ask for that sanctification. Our prayer lives can oftentimes be a point of, of great conviction, I think, for all of us. And in this particular area, I, I feel that conviction. For so frequently as parents, we can pray for the salvation of our kids. And we, we should pray for the salvation of our kids. And we pray for our protection, and we pray for our nation's leaders, and we pray for this, and we pray for that. But how oftentimes are we offering just basic prayers to make our spouse more like Christ? To, to, to make them understand the love of God more and more. Again, not for our own benefit, but, but for our spouse's benefit, so that they might be prepared increasingly for that day of glory. Husbands, wives, how often are, are you lifting up your spouse 
before our Heavenly Father. How often are you praying in the name of Christ in the similar way that Christ prays for us, for, for your spouse to be made more and more like Jesus? To not do so is to make a grave error because, again, the change that we seek in their lives is never dependent upon us or upon them. It's, it's dependent upon God. God alone can effectively change their hearts. And so we must daily, the same way that Christ daily stands to make intercession for us, we must daily stand and pray to God for the growth that, that our spouse so desperately needs. And it is in this process, a broken process, no doubt, for we are broken people, that we are promised that the change is possible, that change can and does happen because God is at work in all of our hearts if we are in Christ. And the goal in Ephesians, again in verse 32, is to speak of the gospel. The goal in Ephesians is clear. It is that you see, your, see in your spouse Christ more and more. That as a result of the way that you serve your spouse, you understand the love of Christ better. As a result of your spouse watching you serve them, they understand the love of Christ better. As a result of watching their parents love each other, your kids understand Christ better. As the world watches you in your marriage, they understand the gospel better. That is the end goal. Because ultimately, again, regardless of our marital status, we are all headed down the same path in Christ towards heaven, if indeed we are in Christ. And so we must be careful to not waste this moment of preparation. We must be careful to not waste this time for the day of glory rapidly approaches. And we need to be prepared. For you who are here this morning who are unbelievers, obviously the calling is simply a calling to repentance. For you are not in a relationship with Christ right now. Christ is not caring for you right now. He is not making sure that you are ready for the day of glory. You are sitting in darkness and if you remain in that darkness, when the day of judgment comes, you will not be greeted with great elation in heaven. You will be greeted with that final judgment and, da- and damnation to hell. That, that is your future. That is the path you are headed down. And so the calling to you unbelievers this morning is, is a call to repent, to believe in Christ, to see the love that he has to offer you and understand again it has nothing to do with things you offer him. It is purely by his gracious work on the cross. And so I beseech that you, you consider Christ that you repent of your sins and that you believe in him. For my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning who are not married, I understand that at times these texts can seem to just go over your head, but, but obviously this applies to you as well, for that metaphor is equally relevant in your life as it is my own. And so as single Christians, it is important to be amazed by Christ's love for you. And despite what this culture might tell you, you don't need a spouse. As glorious as marriage can be, it's not a necessity for you. You must first rest in Jesus, rest in the love that he has for you. And just as you would if you were in marriage, you ought to always work out your salvation with fear and trembling, seek to serve him. And what might help you is perhaps to seek the example of godly married people. Seek their advice, see how they are serving, see how they are submitting, see how they are leading, and see that example of sanctification. For my brothers and sisters in Christ who are married, of course, It is a call to remember the whole point of this thing we call marriage. It is so easy to complain. It is so easy to bicker. It is so easy to lose sight of of why we we are married. We are married for the gospel. We are married to help prepare ourselves and prepare our spouse for that day of glory. And so let us repent of of our silly, selfish sins that destroy so many marriages. 
Let us lay aside the silly, selfish things that so frequently cause fights and understand there's a far greater calling that lies before us than just our own personal happiness in the here and now. Let us rejoice as we repent before God and repent before our spouses. Let us rejoice that we are not dependent upon our own power. Let us rejoice that we are dependent upon the change that Christ promises us. And let us all, both married and single, joyfully look forward to that day of glory. For it will come We will be beautiful, we will be spotless, because we will have been prepared not by our own doing, but by the work of our perfect Lord and Savior and groom, Jesus Christ. 